this is Shirley Smith with Bridge the Gap. Today we will have part two of the body. If you remember, we're talking about the mind, spirit, soul, and body and how that affects uh, the gaps that we have in America and how we can bridge those gaps based upon our understanding of ourselves and others as it relates to those four areas. So we're doing part two of the body today. And last time we discussed the biases that are bringing a large gap within the NBA and also technology industry. Today, we will actually take a look at leadership within the Fortune 500 corporations, and we will try to understand why are there such large gaps within uh, the Fortune 500 companies when it comes to senior level leadership. And another thing that we want to discuss too is what does James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and Aristotle have to possibly do with a lacking of African-American leadership in Fortune 500 corporations today. I have a thought, so think with me. Hello, this is Shirley Smith with Bridge the Gap. Today we're talking part two of the body. And so if just as a reminder, we are discussing the mind, the spirit, the soul, and the body, and how how we develop those parts of us and who we are, uh, how that helps with bridging the gap that is within society among nations of people. And so we're now talking about the body. Last time we discussed part one of the body, which was looking at the biases that's causing a gap within the National uh, Basketball Association and the technology industry. But today, what we're going to look at is leadership in our Fortune 500 corporations. And so I'm sure you want to know, what does Aristotle, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison have in common when it comes to lack of leadership with African Americans within Fortune 500 companies today? So I'm so glad you asked that question. So this is what we're finding out. We're finding out that history has a lot to do with today because we're repeating history. And so I remember sitting in many uh, groups, small groups, where we're discussing black and white situations. And I've heard people make the comment that, well, that happened back, slavery happened years ago. So why are we still upset and why are we protesting today when slavery happened so many years ago? But even though slavery happened so many years ago, a lot of our history books and science books were written back then as well. And so even though statements were made and people suggested things and they were leaders of this country, it carried a lot of weight. And so for example, Aristotle said, and this is from the post-traumatic slave syndrome book written by Dr. Joy DeGruy, uh, Aristotle made a statement years ago that the black skin person was made to work, whereas the white skin person was made to command. And then because Aristotle said it, scientists actually went out trying to prove that for years. And so far, we still do not have proof that that statement was accurate. And keep in mind, because Aristotle had a name for himself, 
people assumed that if he made the statement, it has to be correct, even though scientists have not been able to prove such a thing. And then also, uh, back in 1440, when Europeans started buying and selling and shipping slaves, they made a decision, really, in which was a revenue decision. They needed laborers for the projects that they had. And they found out that if they just bought, sold, and shipped human beings, then they would have the laborers that they need. They could have the profit that they want because the people are enslaved. They're not paying them. Or if they are paying them, they're paying them very little. And so another author that uh, has spoken out about how history has influenced current day is uh, Dr. Joy, uh, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, who wrote the book White Fragility. And one of the things she brought to our attention is this. Thomas Jefferson, who of course was one of the presidents, and James Madison, uh, both have said very uh, condescending things about African Americans. Uh, so Thomas Jefferson basically said that uh, there is a biological difference and white and black. And so scientists were told to go off and prove that. And again, uh, scientists have still not been able to prove such a thing. As a matter of fact, scientists have found out that 99% of us are just alike. So that 1% is variation in shade of skin and potentially hair texture. But uh, so we haven't been able to get past that. So because our leaders, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, James Madison referred to slaves as part human and part uh, property. So that was something really just to kind of get his way with with uh, uh, some laws that he was trying to get passed to help um, particular states. So Uh, We have had condescending information that has come down from generation to generation to generation. And still today, it seems that we still have not conquered the the understanding that African-Americans or black people can lead uh, as well as a white person. There is no difference in intelligence. And so it's just a matter of, have you been prepared to do so? And so in our corporations, we do realize that there are mentoring programs. There are times when people come into an organization and the leader of that organization just prepares that person to take on more responsibility. So uh, one of the things that I read recently uh, was an article from Fortune magazine. And I let's see, when was that written? That was written June 1st of 2020, and the title of it is The Number of Black CEOs in the Fortune 500 Remains Very Low. And then in the article, in the body of the article, it says it remains maddeningly very slim. And that's because they found out that only 1% of the CEOs in Fortune 500 corporations are black. And all four of those are Marvin Ellison, who is over Lowe's, and then Kenneth Frazier, who's over Merck, and then Robert Ferguson, who is over TIAA, which is Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America, and then Renee Jones, who is over the M&T Bank. 
And so um, Fortune finds that to be bizarre in this day and age that we only have four CEOs uh, that are running uh, major corporations. So now Harvard actually, uh, in their report, and I'll just say it's the Harvard Business School uh, Working Knowledge, they usually send out articles by various ones, and typically their professors or assistant professors or associate professors, they will go out and do research on particular areas. So now research has been done on, this is the title of their article, Six Steps to Building a Better Workplace for Black Employees. And the reason why they want to build a better place is because they're finding out that discrimination is quite rampant in corporations to this day. And so um, they've come up with six things that they feel can make life better and also not only just make life better in the corporations for African-Americans, but also find a way to... um, to help them to move forward, to develop them into leadership roles, just like you would develop anyone into a leadership role. So here are the six things that they came up with. First of all, it says, encourage employees to talk about race. One of the things that they have found out that even if something like the George Floyd uh, murder happened, they would, people would just be silent. They would not talk about this at work because it was too uncomfortable to talk about. And so what uh, Harvard is suggesting is that, no, you do want to talk about that, what just happened, because it's all over the news in America. It's all over the world, and the whole world is out there. And they're actually rioting and marching in their country because of how African-Americans are being treated in America. The United Nations actually held a special session uh, just to talk about the way that George Floyd was killed and what should the United Nations do concerning America and in the the part that, you know, they're not actually uh, catering to how to make justice happen better in America. And so here we go with uh, inside the corporations. The suggestion is, number one, African-Americans should feel free to talk about this in their corporations if these things happen. Number two uh, is to encourage the white colleagues to also contribute to the race conversation. And so what they have found out in their research is that of the African-Americans they interviewed about how comfortable do you feel about discussing race and bias in your corporation, 78% of the black professionals said they don't feel comfortable doing this and that they have experienced discrimination. And so when they said, well, how do you feel you should discuss this? 38% of them said, never. <laughs> we should never discuss bias uh, at work. And so they decided to talk to other minorities and other people in the corporation to see how they felt and how how uncomfortable they felt about having uh, racial bias discussions. And so 38% of African Americans said that it should never be uh, an acceptable discussion. Um, 36% of Asian Americans said that they would not feel comfortable discussing racial bias. 
28% of whites said they would not feel comfortable and 28% of Latinos felt that they would not feel comfortable discussing race. So now if we look back at the 38% of the African Americans that said they did not feel comfortable uh, discussing racial bias, 36% of those people said they cannot be authentic at work. They can't bring their, their whole self to work. They can't talk about things that affect African Americans so deeply. 21% of them said, well, I'm planning to leave the company anyway. And then 13% said they just felt disengaged. So because of the way that they're feeling, and I think it's a feeling of isolation, maybe a feeling of rejection as well, potentially. Uh, and because of that, people are making decisions as to whether or not they're going to stay. Now, when I think about this, several years ago, I worked for a computer corporation, which was one of the Fortune 500 corporations. And interestingly enough, uh, what they found out, not just in our corporation, but others as well, minorities would be, would, would be hired, but they would leave quickly because of the discrimination. And so they weren't sure how to function in the environment because it was, it was very isolating as well because there's just not very many African-Americans and other minorities in corporations, Fortune 500 corporations. And so one of the things that our corporation did is they brought in a seminar that the title of that seminar was Efficacy for Professionals of Color. And so if you were at a certain level in the corporation, they actually uh, asked that you attend that seminar. And the whole point of that seminar was to uh, give us tools to use, so to speak, uh, on how to survive in an environment that did not look like us. And so the woman who taught us, her name was Inade Savage, she was excellent. We had one week with her every day, and then we had a month away where we were to work on the things that we had talked about. And then we returned uh, after a month, and we did another whole week in the seminar. And the interesting thing we found out is just about every one of us had gotten a promotion that was in that group. Now, this group was all minorities, so not just African-Americans, but Latinos, Asians, so on and so forth. And what we found out in that group is that we had one Asian man who just felt so uncomfortable being in that group that he didn't stay. And even though she asked him, have you gotten a promotion since you've been working for this company? He said, no. And she said, have any of your peers been promoted that are white? And he said, yes. And so she asked him, do you feel they're more educated than you are? He said, well, no. And she said, well, do you feel you've been looked over? And he said, well, I guess I wasn't qualified. So he actually left with the assumption that it was just not his time or he was not qualified to do, uh, to receive a promotion. But anyway, it's, she gave us a lot of good examples of what we could do <clears throat> in order to move forward in the corporation. 
because our numbers probably were not going to change. And from looking at the statistics that I've been reading from Harvard and also Fortune magazine, it sounds like corporate America is not very different than it was when I was there. And so interestingly enough, uh, her second point is that first help the white colleagues to contribute to the race conversation. And that is difficult to do, I think, because uh, it's just a difficult subject for some people to talk about. But one of the things she's saying is whites have got to stop pretending that there is no tension, no racial tension in the office. Uh, They've also got to stop pretending that there is no racial bias in America. Uh, The other thing she says is that it is good that there is open conversation because there is learning. And when there is learning, the hope is that there will be advocacy for change. And so that is necessary. So uh, black employees will not be able to bring their full identity to work as long as there is no conversation between blacks and whites at work. The third thing that she suggests is that you tackle the systemic inequality. And basically that's saying create a diversity and inclusion program, but do not allow the initiatives to fall short of what your goals were. And that's we've seen that happen in corporations before. They're, they come up with inclusion plans, but how, does, how, do, how are those plans implemented? And how effective were those plans? The other thing that she mentions with us for a systemic inequality is that there needs to be a focus on managing the injustice. So you know that there are injustices there and there needs to be things put in place so that you're changing whatever injustices actually do exist. So the question is this, do minorities feel included in teams and things that are going on? And I think I gave us an example last time with the group that I was in because most of the time I dealt with men and white men if I was in America. If I was in other countries, it was me and whatever, Japanese or Chinese men, whoever. Uh, And because of the area of marketing that I worked in, it just wasn't very many women and it wasn't hardly any (laughs) African-Americans. And so you have to adjust to the culture So sometimes the men in the group would go out and play golf, make decisions on while they're playing golf as to what we're going to do about a project that we're all working on. And when I get to the meeting, the decision has been made. So this is where the question comes from. How comfortable are the minorities feeling about the teams that they're on? Are they feeling included? The fourth thing that she suggests is that we need to confront racial bias in hiring. So that's simple. Just make sure that when you're hiring and recruiting, that you are hiring and recruiting African-Americans. There are black professionals there. As a matter of fact, Fortune Magazine did another article not too long ago about the number of 
African-American professionals that are going to Hong Kong and going to Europe and other countries because they were not able to find positions here or the positions that they had were very discriminating and they eventually moved away. And so the other thing that she suggests is in order to keep confronting racial bias, you have to prevent sideline conversations. So some of the sideline conversations actually does include things like discussing uh, gender and sexual orientation and the needs of various genders. Uh, So especially women, the need for women and the need for uh, sexual orientation people of different sexual orientations to be included. And when that happens, that actually just sidelines the race conversation. Because actually when you think about this, regardless of what gender you are or what sex orientation, sexual orientation you have, you are still either minority or majority. So what she's suggesting is that when you start to go into inclusion for all, the race conversation gets lost. And therefore, if it's lost, it's not going to be paid attention to anymore. The fifth thing she suggests is support the employees so that they can be themselves. And so what she means by this is uh, minorities feel pressure to create a facade Uh, or uh, when they're at work because they don't feel that they can authentically be themselves. So this is what she's suggesting that office need to do or that organization needs to do. It needs to schedule informal get-togethers among the team so that people can actually just get to know themselves, so that some bonding can take place. They can do things like book clubs, Uh, and focus on black writers. And that is exactly what I've done with setting up the Race and Reconciliation. It's a mixed group of us. We are reading black authors about black history, things that are not included in our history books in America. And then she also suggested that people should, uh, teams of people from work should go to African-American museums. They should go to historical sites. In, In other words, Broaden your understanding of the history of African Americans and what they have gone through and what they do go through. Allow them to bring their authentic self to work and talk about some of the things that they deal with. The very last thing she suggests is that be mindful of the mini-me phenomenon. And what she's saying here is that sometimes managers look for someone, they say, oh, it's just like a younger me. And so I like this person. I'm going to help this person get promoted because they're like a a younger version of myself. And so she's cautioning management to avoid looking for the mini-me's and look for people who may not look like them and coach those people and then give them regular feedback and champion them and show them uh, how they can move up but also let them know that you have their back. And so I I think of something in, when I was working in the corporation, I had, was on a project. I decided to pull together uh, when I was uh, looking over, um, at least managing a global customer loyalty program. 
what I did was I decided that, okay, from what I'm learning from the field, the sales force, and what I'm learning from other countries as I talk to them, that we as a company is giving away millions upon multiple millions of dollars to our customers to keep their loyalty. And so what my suggestion was, as I talked with my division manager, I said, why don't we look at combining these programs because we're giving away multiple millions of dollars to the same customers. It's just that they're getting them from different divisions of this corporation. And we have 82 divisions, so we were giving away a lot of money to our customers. Uh, and being very nice to them and providing all kinds of services for them because they were our, what we called our major customers. And so I pulled together uh, people from divisions that had other customer loyalty programs and had a meeting and just basically laid out a chart of all the multiple customer loyalty programs we had within our corporation how many dollars were being spent on each one. Now, the thing that I neglected to understand is that as we combine programs, some people feared for their jobs. And so that caused a bit of backstabbing. And what was interesting is that my division manager called me one day and he said, Shirley, didn't you call a group of people together to work on combining our customer loyalty programs? I said, yes. He said, well, I just got a call from a division manager who just received the report that you did and your name was left off the report and a white woman's name was put on the report as the person leading that team. And so he had to actually, he had my back. He actually went and talked to all the division managers and said, this report and this study and research and suggestion has come out of my division. Shirley Smith did this. And so it's really interesting because if your upper level management cannot get your back, then you're going to have a hard time advancing in that corporation. And so the other thing when it says champion your person, in corporate America, you can tell who is, who's considered to be the upward moving star because when that person is hired, an upper level management person will actually walk them around in that office, introducing them one by one to everybody in that office. And that is how you know who one of the rising stars are. So people then watch for that rising star and there is this saying, hitch to the rising star and you'll go up too. So oftentimes what I would see is that when white men were brought into the office, they were walked around and introduced to all of us one by one. And so we knew that that person was expecting to be a rising star because an upper level management person was actually introducing him. So this has been really good information uh, that Dina uh, Gertman has come up with. Um, I think that if we were to notice that history has given us, in some cases, false information, and with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Aristotle making comments about 
the intellect are suggesting that the intellect of blacks and whites were different. That seemed to have carried for many years, and so still today, we're having a challenge with African Americans and leadership in Fortune 500 corporations now 400 years since slavery. And so we've gotten great examples of the discrimination practices and also things that we can do in our corporations to help people move forward even though they are minorities. They can still move forward in corporations if we close the gap by mentoring them, championing them, and having their back just like you would any other employee. I have a thought that this will actually work, and I'm so thankful that you choose to listen to my thoughts May God bless you.